What a joy to study God's Word again as we continue our studies through the book of Romans. I want to recall to your mind, to your remembrance, that the book of Romans is Paul's doctrinal thesis, if you will, for New Testament, or we might say for Christian doctrine. And these first two chapters are, they consist of his introduction all the way down to like verse 10 or 11 in chapter 3. Paul is introducing the cause of the need for men to be redeemed. And in the process of explaining the need for redemption, he explains the horrible sin and the horrible cost of what sin is and does to people as well as to society. And indeed, if we step back for just a moment and look around at society today and our world today, we see the ravages of sin as it is poured out upon men and women and society in, in general. And so let us begin our study. We'll read the first few verses again. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 through 20. The Apostle Paul writes, Indeed, you are called a Jew, and rest on the law, and make your boast in God, and know his will, and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law, and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Just an aside note here, I decided to go back to using the PowerPoint because of the difficulty in reading my writing, whether it's the glare or my own handwriting uh, causing the problems. Anyway, the Apostle Paul here, according to many people's minds, uh, consider is, is speaking sarcastically and with great deal of irony in these verses. It's almost as though in their minds that Paul is making fun of those who remain in Judaism. But that's not really the case. If we study this a little bit deeper, Paul is genuinely listing what the Jew thinks of himself, a long supposition that the Jew prided himself as being superior to the Gentile because of the gift of the law that God had given to the people uh, under Moses' administration. And therefore, God gives, in the Jew's mind, God gives to the Jew preference over the Gentile. In fact, if we study this carefully and look at it closely, we see that there are indeed, this is indeed a list of the benefits of Judaism. They're called a Jew. That name means something, just like the name Christian today means something. It's not just a common average moniker that we can throw around lightly. It means something to be called, in those days, a Jew. Today, to be called a Christian. They rested in the law. They boasted in God. They knew God's will. They approved things that were excellent. They were taught by the law. They were a light in darkness. They were an instructor of fools, a teacher of babes. They possessed knowledge. And they possessed truth in the law. They didn't do as well as they ought to have done with all of these blessings though. Called a Jew. They wore the name unashamedly. We should be unashamed of the name Christian today. 
Jew and Israelite, or men of Judah and men of Israel, were used interchangeably uh, in the New Testament writings, in, in the apostles' uh, teachings to the Jews in that day, to wear this name meant that one was a chosen member of the uh, a member of the chosen people of God. Jews were often boasting about this special position. Recall the story, if you will, in Luke chapter 18 of the Pharisee and the publican, how the Pharisee lifted himself up and would not bow even before God, but lifted his hand and his hands toward heaven and said, Thank you, God, that I am a Jew, that I am a Pharisee and not like this common, this publican here. The name Jew became a popular designation for the people of Israel, for the chosen people of God about the time that the nations, the, the, the land of Israel divided. This would have been under King Rehoboam's reign, the grandson of David, the son of Solomon. Uh, Rehoboam made some poor decisions and suffered a division, a break in the ranks, if you will, and the southern kingdom, the kingdom that was that consisted of the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, became known as the Jews. This is so because uh, Judah was shortened to Jew, and the whole group, both tribes, became one nation. The word is found several times throughout the Old Testament. Um, during the captivity... The name became cherished and it became loved and adored by these, by these people. Then we see that Paul talks about them being taught by the law. And in reality, this is a great blessing to be taught by the law because it's what was revealed by God. This included a regular assembly of the Jews. This included a regular study and application of the law. They were to teach their children day and night. They were to bind it on the doorpost and on the gates of their house. They were even to wear it in what we might think of sort of a, a frame around their head as gla and, and glasses so that they could see it constantly, certain parts of it especially. The reason for this spirit, super spiritual attitude was based on the fact that Israel alone had been given the revelation. Now, we'll see as we continue through the book of Romans, they misunderstood what they were supposed to do with it. Whether they did this by choice or whether they were taught wrong, we, I can't tell you at this point, but they misunderstood how they were supposed to apply their law. They were supposed to apply it and be a light to those in the world around them. We see this in the succeeding benefits of Judaism. They were supposed to be instructor of fools or a corrector, if you will. A corrector is used in some translation. This person is a trainer, someone who by instruction or correction helps the unskilled and the untaught reach a new level of competence, reach a new level of confidence and faith. Now the word foolish is used in two senses in the word of God. These are those who are void of reason and uh, intelligence and these are also those who act foolishly or even wickedly in the jews estimation all gentiles were foolish whether it was based on ignorance or based on their wicked acts they were foolish in the jews mind morally 
as well as religiously. Second, next we see that the Jews were supposed to be a teacher of babes. An infant or a babe in the Jewish religion was a recent convert. Whether it's a newborn person that's just being taught the law or a Gentile proselyte. This word is used and still today to those who are new in the Lord's church. The Jew pictured himself as one sufficiently enabled to teach those who were babes or young in the faith. These people were professors of knowledge. Think about this. The Jew constantly affirmed that he had the essential, eccentric, concrete form of truth. A surprise, I'm sure it was, for them to learn from the Apostle Paul that what they had as truth and what they cherished so much was in reality only a form or a shadow of the real thing. We'll see this in Romans and we'll see it someday later when we study through the book of Hebrews. They were professors of truth in the law. A moral reality of the substance of goodness is what Paul is referring to here. This is a re reference to the exact formula. They had everything down to a science, if you will. Step by step, exact, precise formulas. Note that Paul is using a bit of irony here, not as much as many scholars or commentators would have us believe. He's not discounting in any way that these are great blessings that God has given to his people, to the people of the, the Jewish people, the people of Judaism. But he counts these blessings off as a background to emphasize the contrast between knowing the law, having the law, and keeping the law. As we'll see as the lesson progresses, the Jews did very poorly at keeping the law. Let's look at the next set of verses, verse 21 through 24. You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed because of you. As it is written. That's actually a rather startling conclusion that Paul makes here, and a rather startling accusation. These people who had the law and cherished the law were, in fact, bringing blasphemy and shame or reproach to God's name because of their life. Let's keep in mind that the purpose of teaching is to change lives. But the teacher must first apply the things that he teaches to himself. I have it actually in my notes this morning. Keep in mind, preacher, that there's three fingers pointing back at you. A grand example of this is found in Isaiah. In chapter 5, Isaiah preaches and, and delivers seven woes or warnings or curses against Israel because of her sins and warns them of the judgment of God short of repentance let's look quickly at those warnings woe to those who join house to house they add field to field till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of Israel we're not going to give a definition of what all of these are I just want to read them quickly <coughs> 
Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicate and drink, who continue until night till wine inflames them. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who puts bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. This is what Isaiah preaches in chapter 5. And then in chapter 6, he has this great vision of the holiness of God. And he says, Woe is me, for I am undone. Because I am a man of unclean lips and dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the Lord, the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah had come face to face with the holiness of God. And he serves as a prime example for godly teaching, preaching. Something that teachers and preachers must always emulate. Fellas, we must never be guilty of talking the talk and not walking the walk. And too often, too often we are. When we do, that always brings shame and reproach to the cause and to the name of God. Jesus condemned the religious establishment of his day. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 2 and 3, saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not according to their works. For they say, and do not do. James the apostle, the Lord's brother, also, the evangelist brother, the Lord's brother also warned, my brethren, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. We need to be very careful. In Exodus chapter 20 and verse 15, in Exodus chapter 20, we have a list of the Ten Commandments. This is the capstone, if you will, of the law of Moses. This is part of those things that the Jews would wear as frontlets on their eyes or tied on to, into the braids on their horses' manes so that they could keep it ever before them. They would write it on the doorpost of their house and on the, on the fence post and their, at their gate to their, to their yard or things like that. The Jews practice often informing the Gentiles of their evil ways in their unfair dealings. They were all the time, if you will, preaching to the Gentiles, you shouldn't cheat. You shouldn't steal, you shouldn't rob. But they were guilty of the same practices. Paul here, if we understand this correctly, is inferring and intends to be talking to the Jew about covetousness, false weights and measures, holding back wages that were duly earned, extortion, exorbitant interest, bribery, oppression, cheating, embezzlement. All of these things are clear violation of the eighth of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. Then the Apostle Paul talks about adultery. The ancient Jewish writings post-New Testament age, after the New Testament was written, 
known as the Talmud, records some of the most celebrated rabbis. Even today, as we do deep dive and study, we read about rabbi this and rabbi that. According to the Talmud, according to certain Jewish historians, many of these great rabbis were guilty of adultery. And Jesus was confronted by these very same men with the adulterous woman. Some translators have him saying to those men who brought this woman and saying, Master, what shall we do with this woman who's been caught in adultery? And Jesus, you know, wrote something on the ground and then stood up and said, He who is without sin cast the first stone. Some commentators and translators have him saying, Let him who has not committed adultery cast the first stone. Interesting thoughts here. The Apostle Paul then talks about robbing temples. The idea of abhorrence is an expression of physical disgust. It's well known after the Babylonian captivity that the Jewish people never again went back into full-scale idolatry. They never again worshipped the gods of the Babylonians or the gods of the uh, Phoenicians or the gods of the people of the Canaanites. They never again went back to worshipping and bowing uh, at these stone idols and wooden and carved idols. But they were guilty of robbing temples. And what this means is they would go into a temple as it's being constructed or as it's being remodeled or perhaps as it's being cleaned and take out of that temple a golden idol, a golden statue of whatever imagination of the false god that those people worshipped. They would take it, they'd grind it down, they'd resell it. This was against their law. This was contrary to the law. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 25 and 26, the law of Moses says, You shall burn the carved images of their gods with fire. You shall not covet the silver or gold that is on them, nor shall you take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it, for it is an abomination to you, to the Lord your God. Nor shall you bring an abomination into your house, lest you be doomed to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it, for it is an accursed thing. And we're not under that law today. If we're in the market of antiquities or whatever, we can take carved out statutes and do what we want with them today. But in those days, the Jews were under strict prohibition against doing such things. I want you to notice the order of accusations in chapter 1 and in chapter 2. The Apostle Paul begins in Romans chapter 1 dealing with Gentile idolatry. And then he progresses to Gentile sins against themselves in their own flesh. And then sin against God. In chapter 2, Paul does an about face. He approaches it in a completely opposite manner. He shows them first their sin against God, and then their sins against themselves, and then he progresses back to their actual idolatry. They didn't openly practice idolatry, though, just like many of us today. It was practiced through their greed and their avarice. They were repulsed by idol worship. They were abhorrent of idol worship. But they were not repulsed by the gold and the jewels of the idol's temple. 
the very thing that God had proclaimed an anathema uh, to them in Deuteronomy, which we just read. The point to be considered is not the stealing that was covered in the second question. The point here to be dis considered what is the violation of the first principle of Judaism. The Lord your God is one Lord. The absolute abhorrence of all idols and everything to do with them. To covet, to snatch some jewel or gold or silver from an idol's temple or to have anything to do with it at all destroyed the Jews' Judaism. Then Paul talks about law-breaking. That simply means to cross over the line. God had drawn lines about what is right and what is wrong. He had faithfully warned the Jews through his servants, the prophets. The laws that Paul points out here are some of the very ones specified in the Ten Commandments. Some translators, most commentators, understand this verse to be an emphatic statement. You are dishonoring God. The you here harkens back to those who glory in the law that we began talking about. Paul concludes that your sin, their sin, tarnishes the name of God. The Gentiles of Paul's day understood good man, good God. Bad man, bad God. The Jews' actions reflected directly upon the character of God. For the Jew who claimed Jehovah God as their very own, disowning their responsibility to be a light to the Gentiles, this was one of the primary purposes of the law, was to be a light to those pagans who were lost in darkness. Jews completely ignored that, brought shame to God by their actions. It is the whole life and conduct, not just the profession of the lips that does real honor to God. God is dishonored by the transgression of his people in a manner in which he is not dishonored by the transgressions of the wicked, those who make no profession of being his. God's name was blasphemed. The very people that God called to be the means of making him known to the nations was the cause of the nations speaking evil about him. Today, like the heathen of old, we judge a man's religion by his life. We have New Testament principle for that. Matthew chapter 7, verse 16 and 17. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. As much as the name of God suffered in that day, Christianity suffers today. Christianity is judged, harshly judged, by the conduct of its closest friends, of its allies. Denominations abound, each one claiming that it has the right to the absolute exclusion to the other. That sectarian spirit too often has slipped into the Lord's church. How easy it is for us to deny brotherhood, to allow alienation and bitterness to rule the day when we're supposed to love each other and be patient with each other and be kind and forbearing toward each other. When this happens, 
the world looks on. And the world's conclusion is this religion is not divine. They bite and devour each other. They're cruel. They're mean to each other. They can't even get along with each other. Contrary to the inspired admonition of the apostle in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use this liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour each other, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. What more shall we say this morning? Do we, the Lord's church, practice idol worship? Do we bite and devour each other? Do we steal and practice idolatry? The world looks on too often and cannot differentiate between our life and their life. They shake their heads then and go to atheism. We can't blame modern scholasticism, not entirely. We must blame our own guilt and we must change our ways. Do we practice idolatry? We deny it. We deny idolatry. But we can't live a moment without our devices. We spend more time on the phone than on our knees. We spend more time reading Facebook or some other media than we do the Word of God. We spend more time playing games than serving our neighbor and our brother. Do we practice idolatry? Is it not idolatry to be completely devoid of a devotional life, too busy to serve our fellow man? We deny adultery. But we soft-mouth all types of sexual sin, including fornication, homosexuality, pornography. Our duplicitous lives bring shame to our Creator, beside embarrassing ourselves. We deny being a thief but we rob God. We say we're not under the Old Testament law of the tithe, and it's true, we're not. But we wait till the last minute to prepare our contribution. We put everything else before it. We give God the leftovers rather than living on what's left. God has never accepted second best. We need to understand that. He didn't in the days of the patriarchs, Adam and Enoch, Abraham, he didn't in the days of the law of Moses. He doesn't today. He will be first. He will be first. And this is most often, most easily exhibited, reflected in our contribution. Do we take advantage of the widow and the innocent? Do we get gain by charging unfair prices for services and taking advantage of folks? Do we alter our taxes and make things look differently than what they really are? These are forms of stealing. Do we pick up things that don't belong to us? The question remains, do we practice what we preach? We preach against gossip and slander our brother. We preach for unity and then cause division. Romans 25 through 29. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. 
Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who, even with your written code and circumcision, are a transgressor of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. For the Jew, circumcision was everything. This was God's special sign of his favor, his special favor. For many of us in the Lord's church today, one cup is everything. Acapella music is everything. The absence of Sunday school is everything. This has sometimes poisoned our senses. And we must ask ourselves, what good does drinking from one cup do if we bite and devour each other in gossip? What good is it to sing a cappella if we evil surmise and act unloving toward our brother? Is the name of God blasphemed because of our attitude or because of our secret sin? Do we bring reproach on the name of God or on the church that Jesus died for by aligning ourselves with political movements? The time I've spent on Facebook recently, I've been embarrassed by the division among our brethren over politics. May God have mercy on us. I do not think God is well pleased with this behavior of his people. Do we bite and devour each other over a face mask? Whatever side you might fall on, if there is a side, where's brotherly love? This is the question of the hour for all of us. No matter where we fall on whatever issue that we may be discussing, where's brotherly love? Does my action, does my attitude toward my brother blaspheme God's name? That's what the Apostle Paul was telling the Jews that day. Your actions blaspheme God's name among the Gentiles. Our actions can blaspheme God's name in the world today. The things that we do, the things that we refuse to do, either bring honor to God's name or shame Him. The lesson is yours this morning. I hope that it's edifying to you.